Section 4 of Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ken Felt. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 5 by Julian Hawthorne, Editor. This is Section 4, Andrea Delphin, by Paul Hayes, Part 1. The scene and time of Hayes's Andrea Delphin are alike tragic. Venice was rarely a peaceful community in its early glory, but the years from 1750 on until nearly the close of the century saw the very blackest period. The Queen of the Seas had become a community torn by petty internal strife and jealousies. Unsuccessful war had robbed the proud Republic of many of her possessions. Aggression from without could not be combated by a people harassed by tyranny within. Individual initiative was killed by despotism, industry and commerce suffered in consequence, and life in Venice offered nothing but the opportunity for political intrigue or private and public debauchery. The Great Council, that splendid machinery of government, instituted in the early days of the Republic to secure the power to the sovereign people forever, had come to be only an instrument in the hands of the nobility, helpless itself to control its own creature, the Council of Ten. This smaller council, at first merely a committee of the Great Council, chosen to act on certain special cases of urgency, had become the true seat of power, and with its own appointed committee, the three inquisitors of state ruled Venice absolutely. The three inquisitors were the final judges, and the mystery which surrounded their actions, their very persons, even, made their rule a complete despotic tyranny, responsible to no one, sparing no one. No citizen of Venice was safe from interference in his most private affairs. Open murder and secret assassinations were the order of the day. The strife of the nobility among themselves rent the city asunder. A party of the older families, prominent since the earliest days of Venetian history, had been ousted from power by a younger faction which had captured the Council of Ten. They still held seats in the Great Council, but were powerless to control the Ten. Their jealousy broke out in constant petty rebellions, which sharpened the tyranny of the Ten and an era of oppression that would have done credit to the most despotic form of monarchy brooded over the nation calling itself a republic. The absorption of power and wealth in the hands of the few meant poverty and loss of energy for the many, and the death knell of Venetian independence had sounded. The Editor Paul Hayes Andrea Delphin Vengeance is mine, said the Lord. 
About the middle of the last century there stood, in a side street of Venice, a quiet little street bearing the cheerful name Della Cortesia, a simple one-story house. The Madonna was enthroned above its low portal, in a niche framed by wooden columns and quaint stone carvings. A tiny lamp, set in a globe of ruby glass, shone out before the statue day and night. Just inside the lower vestibule, a steep staircase led to the upper rooms. On its higher landing, another little lamp, hanging on chains from the ceiling, gave a dim light in the dark hall. In spite of the eternal twilight that reigned there, the staircase was the favorite place for rest or work of the owner, Giovanna Daniele. Since the death of her husband, Madame Giovanna had occupied the little dwelling with her only child, her daughter Marietta, renting some of the rooms she did not need to quiet, well-recommended strangers. Giovanna would explain her love for the stairs by saying that her eyes had become so weakened through weeping for her lost husband that they could no longer endure the full daylight. Her neighbors asserted that she enjoyed the opportunity her position on the stairs gave her for stopping those who went in or out and chatting with them. However this might be, her favorite place of sojourn afforded her little chance for amusement on the day and hour when we first make her acquaintance. It was an evening in August of the year 1762. For six months she had had no lodgers, and she was unlikely to have any visitors at so late an hour. Madame Giovanna had sent her daughter to bed, and had settled herself on the stairs with a basket of vegetables beside her. But her hands rested idly in her lap, her head fell back against the railing, and she was just dozing off when three slow, heavy blows on the house door awoke her. She listened in alarm, not knowing whether she had really heard the noise. The blows of the knocker were repeated. Madame Giovanna shook her head, then walked slowly down the stairs and asked through the crack of the door who demanded entrance at so late an hour. A voice answered that a stranger stood outside who was looking for a room. The house had been recommended to him, and he desired to remain for some time. His polite manner of speaking awoke Giovanna's confidence sufficiently to allow her to open the door. She saw a man in the quiet black garb of the middle-class citizen, holding a leather bag under one arm. His face attracted her attention. He was neither young nor old. His beard was dark brown, his eyes bright and fiery, his brow without a furrow. But around his mouth were lines of weariness, and his close-cropped hair was quite gray. "'I regret to have disturbed you so late, my good woman,' he said. "'Tell me at once whether you have a room looking out upon the canal. "'I come from Brescia, and my physician told me that I must live near the water, "'as I need the moist air for my weak lungs.' "'Fortune be praised!' 
exclaimed the widow. My last lodger left me because his room was too near the canal. He complained that the water smelled as if rats had been boiled in it. They do say here in Venice that our canal water is a radical cure for all ills. But they mean it in the sense of the many times when the authorities send out a gondola to the lagoons with three passengers, and it returns with only two. God preserve us all. Is your passport in good order? Otherwise I may not take you. I have already shown it three times. In Mestra, in the police gondola outside the harbor, and at the Traghetto. My name is Andrea Delphin. My business, that of scribe to the notaries. I am a quiet man, and I have as little to do with the police as possible. That is good hearing, said the little woman, leading her guest upstairs. These are hard times, Sir Andrea. Is it not pretty here? She opened the door of a large room and motioned him to enter. The window there looks out upon the canal, and the other window opens on a little alley. But you must close that window on account of the bats. And across the canal there, so near that you could almost touch it, is the palace of Countess Amadei, who is as blonde as yellow gold and goes through as many hands. I will bring you light and water in a moment. Do you wish anything to eat? The stranger threw a quick, sharp glance about the room, went from one window to the other, and then threw his bag upon a chair. This will do very well, he said. We will soon come to an agreement about the price, I fancy. Bring me something to eat and a glass of wine, if you have it. His voice was gentle, but there was something of command in his manner. The woman left the room, and as soon as he was alone, he walked at once to the window and leaned out, looking down at the narrow canal. The black water lay quiet, and opposite him rose the heavy mass of the palace, turning its front to the other street and showing him only a few dark windows. A narrow door opened almost under his window, and a black gondola lay chained to the step. All this seemed to please the stranger very much, particularly the fact that his other window looked out upon a blank wall, with no vis-a-vis -vis to spy upon him. Below was a narrow courtyard, which seemed abandoned entirely to cats, rats, and birds of the night. A light from the hall brightened the room as the door opened and the little widow entered, bearing a candle. Behind her was her pretty young daughter, Marietta, carrying a tray upon which were bread, cold meat, fresh figs, and a half-filled bottle of wine. As the girl set the tray down upon the table, she whispered to her mother, What a queer face he has! He looks like a new house in winter, when snow has fallen upon the roof. Be quiet, foolish child, whispered the mother quickly. White hairs are oftentimes false witness. The gentleman is ill. Go and fetch the water now. He is very tired, and will want to go to sleep. 
During these whisperings the stranger had sat by the window, resting his head in his hands. When he looked up, he scarcely seemed to notice the presence of the pretty girl, in spite of her polite courtesy. "'Come and eat,' said the widow. "'The figs are fresh, and the ham is tender. "'This is a good wine which the dog's own cellar-keeper sold to my husband. "'You have travelled much, sir. "'Have you perchance met my husband anywhere? "'Or so, Danielli?' "'The stranger had poured out a glass of wine and taken up one of the figs. "'Good woman,' he replied, "'I have never been far from Brescia.' and I know no one of the name you mention. Marietta had left the room, and her young voice was heard trilling a cheerful song as she ran down the stairs. Just hear that child, exclaimed Madame Giovanna. She would rather dance and sing all day than do anything else, and it's ill singing here in Venice, where they say it's a good thing the fishes are dumb, because of the terrible things they might tell. But her father was just like that. My Orso was the best workman in Murano. Where they make the colored glass, they say you can't find it anywhere else in the world. He had a gay heart, and he said to me one day, Giovanna, he said, the air here chokes me. Just yesterday they hung a man because he dared to talk against the Council of Ten. Therefore, Giovanna, said he, I'm off for France. I know my work, and just as soon as I've earned enough, you and the child can follow me. He left when he kissed me good-bye, but I wept, sir. Then, a year later, sir, what do you suppose happened? This Signoria sent to me that I should write him he must come back at once. No workman from Murano must dare to carry his skill and his knowledge into another country, they said. He laughed at the letter, but one morning they dragged me out of bed and took me with a child to the lead roofs. Then they told me to write him again and tell him they would keep me there till he came himself. After that, he wrote that he was coming. But I watched and watched, weeks and months, and, oh, sir, my heart grew heavy and my head was sick, for it's hell out there under the lead roofs, and in the third month they let us out and sent us home, and told me that my Orso had died of fever in Milan. Others told me that, too, but I know the Signoria dead does a man die when he knows his wife and child are waiting for him under the lead roofs and what do you think has happened to your husband asked the stranger she turned her eyes on him with a look which reminded him afresh of the weeks she had spent under the dreaded lead roofs many a man lives and does not come back she said and many a man is dead, and yet he comes back. But it is best that I talk no more about it. How can I know that you may not repeat to the tribunal what I am saying? You look like an honest man, 
but we trust no one in Venice today. There was a pause. The stranger had pushed back his plate and was listening attentively. I cannot blame you if you will not tell me your secret, he said. But how comes it, my good woman, that you do not rebel? You and all the others in Venice who have suffered so much at the hands of this tribunal? I have troubled myself little with political questions, but I have heard that only a year ago there was an uprising against the secret tribunal, an uprising led by a member of the nobility. Then, finally, when the disturbance was quelled, and the might of the secret judges stronger than ever, why then did the people rejoice and heap scorn upon the nobility? Why was there no one brave enough to protest when the inquisitors sent their rash enemy into exile in Verona? I know little about it, as I have said, but I think it strange that the people of Venice should complain of their tyrants and then rejoice at the defeat of those who would put an end to the tyranny. The widow shook her head. Then you never saw him, the advocate Signor Angelo Querini, he whom they exiled? I saw him, sir, and many other poor people have seen him, and we all know him for an honest gentleman and a great scholar. But we could see also that he was a nobleman, and that all he did and said against the tribunal, he did and said, not for the poor people, but for the great gentleman. But it's all the same to the sheep, sir, whether they are slaughtered by the butcher or eaten by the wolf. And therefore the people rejoiced when the big thief hung the little one. The stranger seemed about to answer, but contented himself with a short laugh. Marietta re-entered, bearing a pitcher of water, and a little pan of sharp-smelling incense, which she held to the walls and ceilings, to kill the flies hanging there in myriads. The woman chattered gaily, but their new guest did not seem interested. He bade them a curt farewell, when they finally turned to leave him, and when alone he sat for a long time, motionless at his table. The shadows deepened in his face, and his whole figure was so quiet one might have thought him dead, had it not been for the wild fire in his eyes. The clock from a neighboring church, striking the eleventh hour, aroused him from his thoughts. The sharp-smelling smoke of the incense still hung about the low ceiling. Andrea opened the window to clear the air. He saw a light in one of the windows opposite, and through the opening of a white curtain he could see a girl seated at a table eating and drinking. Her face had a carefree and light-hearted expression, although she was no longer in her first youth. There was something studied in the disorder of her dress and hair, something that was self-conscious but not unpleasing. She must have noticed that the room opposite was occupied, but she continued her supper calmly. Then she set the empty dishes aside and moved the table with the lamp against the wall that the light might fall on a tall mirror in the background. 
whereupon she began to try on, one after the other, a number of fancy costumes which lay thrown about on the chairs. Her back was turned to the man opposite, but he could see her picture clearly in the mirror. And he could also see that the girl was watching his reflection sharply. As he remained motionless, and she did not see the expected signs of applause for her appearance in her changing garb, she grew impatient. She took up a large red turban, on which a heron's feather was fastened by a shining clasp. The vivid coloring looked well with her olive skin, and she made a deep bow to herself in the mirror. Then she turned suddenly and came to the window, pushing back the curtain. "'Good evening, monsieur,' she said cheerily. "'You are my new neighbor, I perceive. I hope that you will not play the flute all night as your predecessor did, keeping me awake thereby.' "'Fair neighbor,' answered the stranger, "'I am not likely to disturb you with any sort of music. I am a sick man who is thankful if he is not disturbed himself.' "'You are ill?' answered the girl. Are you rich? No. Why do you ask? Because it is very sad to be ill and poor at the same time. Who are you? My name is Andrea Delphin. I have been a scribe of the court in Brescia, and have come here to take service with a notary. The answer seemed to disappoint her. And who are you, fair maiden? Andrea continued with an interest in his tone belied by the expression of his face. It will be a comfort for me in my suffering to know that you are so near me. This seemed to be what the girl was looking for, and she smiled, as if pleased. To you, I am the Princess Smeraldina, she said, and I will allow you to admire me from a distance. When I put on this turban, it is a sign that I am willing to chat with you, for I find many hours hanging weary on my hands here. You must know, she continued in a changed tone, that my mistress, the countess, will not permit me to have a lover, although she changes her own lovers more often than she changes her gowns. If it were not that occasionally some pleasing stranger takes your room— who is the present lover of your mistress interrupted andrea does she receive the high nobility of venice are the foreign ambassadors among her visitors they come to her masked usually answered smeraldina but i know that young greety is her favorite now she loves him more than i have ever seen her love anyone since i have been with her she loves him more than she does the Austrian ambassador, who pays court to her until the others laugh at him. Do you know my countess? She is very beautiful. I am a stranger here, child. I have never seen her. The girl laughed a sly laugh. <laughs> she paints her face although she is not yet thirty. But you can see her easily if you wish to. I will arrange it some time, but good night now. I must go to her. She shut the window. Poor and ill, 
she said to herself as she drew the curtain. Well, it is better than nothing. The man opposite had closed his window also. I might find that useful, he said to himself, with an expression which showed that there was no thought of love in his mind. He unpacked his bag and laid the few articles of clothing and the book or two which it contained in a cupboard in the wall. One of the books fell from his hand, and the stone on which it struck gave forth a hollow tone. Andrea put out his light at once, bolted his door, and commenced to examine the floor by the pale glimmer that came in through the window. In a few moments he found that it was possible to raise the stone, and beneath it he discovered a hole of considerable size. He removed his outer coat and unbuckled a heavy belt with well-filled pockets which had been fastened round his body. He was about to put it in the hole when he suddenly halted. No, he exclaimed. This may be a trap laid by the police. It is much too inviting to be safe. He replaced the stone and sought for another, safer hiding place for his secrets. The window looking out on the blind alley was barred, but the openings were large enough to admit of the passage of an arm. He felt about on the outer wall and discovered a tiny hole just under the sill. It could not be seen from below, and the window ledge hid it from above. He dug at the hole noiselessly with his dagger, and had soon widened it sufficiently to lay his belt in it. He examined it all closely when his work was done, to see that there was nothing of it visible, and then closed the window again. An hour later he was fast asleep, his lips tight set, as if fearing to reveal his secrets even in a dream. End of section 4 Recording by Ken Felt